privilege of beginning a new series this morning on the book of Jonah. This is going to be an entire series on the book of Jonah. We do this a couple of times a year where we just take the opportunity, uh, a book that Pastor Josh and myself that we've been reading that's really intrigued us and inspired us. We take the time to do an entire message series and just study out just that one book of the Bible from beginning to end. And maybe you've read the book of Jonah and you know that it's a short read. It's only about four chapters long. So as a matter of fact, if you're a speed reader, you could read through the book of Jonah while I'm doing my introduction now. And um, I encourage you to at least read it this afternoon because it is a very interesting book. And as any good story... It is an exciting story. It's got a lot of action. Do I have any action movie fans in the house today? I love a good action movie. It's got a lot of twists and turns. And Jonah is a fascinating book of the Bible that really at first glance, it leaves us with some questions. And when you're studying the Bible, asking good questions leads to good answers. Amen. And so it really, the first time you read it, beginning to end, it left me with three questions. I think you probably had or will have these same three questions. And the first one is this, is this for real? Like, did this really happen? Did a man, a prophet of God, get swallowed by a fish? Some translations say fish and big fish and great fish. We were actually having a discussion earlier with some of the team. Was it a whale? We don't know. But it, it says that he was swallowed. And it's just like the whole story, especially the part where he swallowed by fish, is just is amazing. And it makes you go, is, is this really a real story? And second thing is, why would a prophet of God run from God? It says that he ran away. So why did he run away? And then number three, what on earth does this story have to do with me? In America, thousands of years later, what on earth does this have to do with me? But it's a really great story, and I just want to spend the remainder of our time together looking at some of the answers that the text provides to these questions, and then we'll also discover a few things along the way. But I just want to say this at the onset, that Jonah is a man that after reading his story, it's really easy to just make a couple of assumptions about him. I think we've all done it when we read the story of Jonah. And we know that assumptions are usually the enemy of truth. So as we take a closer look this morning at the context, I think we're going to discover that we have a lot in common with Jonah after all. So the first thing I want to do is I want to give you some historical context. If you've been a part of our church family for very long, you know that there are three very important things when it comes to studying the Word of God. The first thing is context. The second thing is what? And the third one is, let Pastor Josh hear you. Context. And I would add a fourth one, which is coffee. Okay? I just, I'm a coffee drinker. Do we have any coffee drinkers in the house? I see a few cups and mugs. So it doesn't help. Actually, it helps a lot. A little bit of caffeine goes a long way. So having some coffee and context, we're going to be able to dig into this and discover some truths. Amen? So 2 Kings chapter 14 is actually where we first hear of Jonah. It's not just in the book of Jonah, but 2 Kings. And so... There's a lot of history here in a, in a little bit of wording, so bear with me. I want to read to you from 2 Kings 14, verse 23 to 25. It says, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was one 
He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebohamoth to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant, Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from gath So here's the answer from the very beginning. Is this for real? Yes. This is a real story. It's not a fable. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a parable. This is a real story of a real man named Jonah, a servant of God, son of Amittai, and he was a chosen prophet of God. This really did happen. Jesus himself mentions Jonah in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Many religious leaders and and, and some of the following of Jesus comes to Jesus and says, we want a sign from you. We want to know that you're the Messiah. Give us a sign. And he says in verse 40 of chapter 12, Matthew 4, as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. He goes on to say that as great as Jonah was, and as we'll discover soon, Jonah was a great prophet. He has a rough start, but he ends up being one of the most successful prophets of all time. Even as great as he was, Jesus says, someone greater is now here, and he's referring to himself. And so even Jesus points it out. So we know that he is a real person in a real time in history, and it is a historical fact. But secondly, why did he run from the Lord? To answer this question, we're going to go ahead and jump right into chapter 1 of Jonah. Chapter 1, verse 1. Pierce, what did I do? Here we go. Thank you, sir. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Get up and go to the large city of Nineveh and preach against it. For their sin has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord, going toward Tarshish. He went down to Joppa and found a ship which was going to Tarshish. Jonah paid the money, got on the ship to go with them to get away from the Lord. So why did he run after getting a word from the Lord? He simply ran because he wanted to get away from the Lord. One translation says he was fleeing to get away from the presence of Adonai. He wanted to flee the presence of the God who called him to a city. This begs the question, what is it about Nineveh that would make him not just refuse to go, but to go as far away as possible? In this map here, you can see the call of God happens here. It says that he went down to Joppa. Nineveh is only 550 miles from where he is. He goes to Joppa and instead asks around and takes a journey 2,500 miles to Tarshish, which as you can see is on the southern end of Spain, which looks like a resort destination. I mean, this is the kind of place you would go if you wanted to restart your life. This is the kind of place you would go if you wanted to flee from something and start over. He is either scared or he is selfish, maybe a little bit of both, but he decides, I'm going to go to Joppa, I'm going to ask around where are you going? Where are you going? Where are you going? And, I, and he's, I'm probably making a list, I would imagine. And then when he finds out the one that is the farthest away, one translation says he paid the fare. So we don't know if he just paid for a ticket or if he chartered the entire boat. But either way, he paid a significant amount of money to go all the way to Tarshish just to get away from the God who had called him to Nineveh. So what is it about Nineveh? Nineveh historically was known to be one of the most violent nations and kingdoms in the known world. 
They were known for their military brutality. They were known for holding their soldiers. I'm trying to say this delicately because there's children here. They would hold. They wanted to keep their victims alive as long as possible under the most torturous conditions. They were known for being brutal. So I can imagine if I'm Jonah, of all the places God wants to call me, which by the way, Jonah had just prophesied that the nation of Israel would have peace and prosperity, and it was coming to pass. But just like any of us, when things get easy, we get lazy, and the people were turning away from the things of God. They were getting away from following God. And so Jonah wants to stay in Israel. He's needed in Israel. He can see that he needs to be a prophet here among his people. And if he leaves, he would feel like a traitor. And who cares about Nineveh? They're violent. He probably is thinking to himself, they don't even deserve a word from the Lord. But yet that's where God calls him. I feel like God maybe was trying to tell him a life is a life, whether they're in Israel or they're in Nineveh or they're across the world. But these people would brag about their creative ways of torture, their hostility towards anyone who believed differently than them. And now Jonah is being called into this place. So what on earth does that have to do with me? What on earth does that have to do with us? I would like to just spend the next few moments kind of wrestling with this dilemma that Jonah would be in and put ourselves in his shoes and maybe discover that we're kind of in his shoes here in America in a way. Now knowing what we know about Jonah, about Nineveh, let's put ourselves in a scenario similar to his. I feel like the equivalent would be if right here, right now, God were to call you to go to the Middle East and God said, I want you to round up the Taliban, I want you to round up ISIS, and I want you to tell them to repent or destruction will come. Does anyone here feel boldness in that moment if God were to call you? And I don't know that God has called anyone in this room to take on that. But I do know that God maybe is calling you not across the world, but he's calling you across the street or he's calling you across the office. He's calling you across the political aisle to reach out and to minister to someone who is gasping for a breath of fresh air. They're gasping for the truth of God's word. Maybe God's calling us to be his prophets. And it's simply across even the hallway or across the street. Being a pastor, I've been given this amazing opportunity to walk with many of you and to serve alongside of you. And I can see faces and I can connect stories and testimonies to the faces that I see. And if there's one thing we all have in common, it's that once we have found the will of God, And we've all taken different roads to find the will of God. But once we found the will of God, we've all struggled at some time to understand the will of God. It's not that we don't want to do the right thing. It's that we don't often understand how to do the right thing. And that's the common denominator. When God speaks, the enemy also starts to speak. And I want you to know something. The enemy cannot create or do any of the things that God has done. This is what made him jealous to begin with, which was why he was cast into hell. He can't create the things of God. All he can do is pervert and destroy and distort the things of God. That's all he wants to do. He just wants to get in the middle and and try to talk you out of doing the thing God has called you to do. So when we struggle to obey, 
It's not because we don't want to do the right thing. It's that we don't understand, therefore we doubt. We lack the confidence and the faith to do the right thing. Inevitably, we end up doing the wrong thing. We end up disobeying simply because we do nothing. Well, doing nothing when God calls us to do something is rebellion. Amen? It's like I tell my children, waiting to listen is not the same as listening. They can ignore me all they want. That's still not listening. They can say, I'm going to clean my room or I'm going to finish my food. I'm going to. But if I told you to do it, I expect you to do it now. I expect you to do it when I say. So they are the masters of stalling anything they don't want to do. My daughter will sit at the table way longer than anyone else to finish her food. Simply because I don't want to eat my vegetables, right? Or I don't want to clean my room. I don't want to do that. And so they stall. I want them to realize that choosing to do nothing is the same. That's disobedience. So what happens is this gives the devil a chance to get a foothold. When we sit there and do nothing, when God has called us to do something, the enemy begins to talk and he begins to distort some of the things that we once knew as facts and we begin to assume that they are fiction. So I want to clear the air before we go any further into Jonah. I want to clear the air and allow us to understand that the facts that you know are facts, not fiction. The first thing I want you to know is that the Lord is speaking to you. The same Adonai who called Jonah to Nineveh is the same Adonai who is speaking to you, perhaps right now in this moment. It's the same God speaking to you. He has given you a distinct identity a calling, and an assignment. The question is, are you listening to him? Or have you stalled long enough to allow the enemy to talk you out of it? Or to make you think he's not speaking to you? John 10, chapter 27 says this, says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. God is speaking to you. The Lord is speaking to you. He wants to communicate with you. He wants to talk to you. And the second thing is this, the Lord never stops pursuing you. See, we think, and perhaps this is what Jonah was thinking, if we run from God, then God will run from us. If we tell God, I'm done, I'm through, I'm not living for you, then we think that God is saying, okay, I'll listen to you and I'll leave you alone. But that's not what the word of God tells us and that's not the character of God. Psalms 23, verse 6, your beauty and your love chase after me day, every day of my life. And in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 32.10 says, In a desert land he found him, meaning God found his chosen people. In a barren and howling waste, he shielded him and cared for him, and he guarded him as the apple of his eye. We know that Israel did not always walk faithfully with God, yet he continued to encircle them and guard them as the apple of his eye. See, sometimes I'm foolish enough to believe that I'm the one that determines what's going to happen between me and God. I think that I'm the one that calls the shots. But God never gives up. Even when I give up, God never gives up. He is always faithful. Amen? 
And the third thing is this, the Lord has chosen you. Just as Jonah heard from the Lord, the Lord was speaking to him, never stopped pursuing him. He chose him. The Lord has chosen us. Peter chapter 2, verse 9, 1 Peter. But you are God's chosen treasure, priests who are kings, meaning you have the same authority as your Father in heaven, a spiritual nation set apart as God's devoted ones. He called you out of darkness to experience his marvelous light. And now he claims you as his very own. He did this so that you would broadcast his glorious wonders throughout the world. I'm so thankful that Jesus did not just choose his followers. He didn't choose his disciples based on how successful they were, how accomplished they were. He didn't choose them how, based on how talented they were. He simply chose his followers by how willing they were to go. The Bible says that they dropped their nets. They dropped what they were doing when he said, come follow me. And they followed him. Because the willing will see the power of God. Those who are willing to accept the call of God will see the power of God. He chooses those who are willing and those who will commit to whatever it is that he calls them to do. We recently started watching this show, The Floor is Lava. Has anybody ever seen this show on Netflix? I see a few hands. Our kids love this show. They came across it and, of course, we watched an episode or two. And before long, our house is now the game show site of The Floor is Lava. And the kids are jumping from one couch to a pillow and then onto the top of the, you know, just, it's craziness. And it's now banned in our home, which I highly recommend you do as well. And we, we use the, the disclaimer that they start the show with, the floor is lava, do not try this at home. So we tell the kids, you're, we're not allowed to try this at home. But our kids love that. So outside we've been playing it. And one thing I've noticed with my two, my two oldest children they don't quite understand their strength yet. They don't quite understand their own strength. And especially my son, he has gotten really good at the floor is lava. And I've seen him take some, some pretty big risk, a jump from one place that I can, I can promise without telling him he's not going to make it that far. But he takes the leap of faith and he tries and he falls and he, he, he gets hurt, but he laughs even though he's hurt, right? But then there's other times after taking a, a hit the floor is lava, and you, you have to climb from piece of furniture to a piece of furniture. You have to climb from thing to thing. Anything around you is lava, and if you fall in the lava, game over, right? Well, I've seen after taking a fall into the lava that things that are easy, just something easy to step onto from one place to another, the hesitation. And you have to be, if you've seen the game show, you have to be fully committed. If you're going to go for the next obstacle. If you're going to go for the next thing to climb on, you have to be fully committed. And I feel like this is a perfect example of what it's like in our journey with Christ. The more committed we are, the more God is able to do through us. The more willing we are to try to go for the adventure, to answer the call of God, even when it doesn't make sense, even when we don't understand it, any hesitation, we end up looking like Jonah. I see Jonah going from a God-fearing man, devoted to the nation of Israel, devoted to God, to now a reluctant prophet because he's hesitating. He's now a rebel with a cause, and that cause is himself. It's his own selfishness that is keeping him from answering the call of God. When we understand that we too find ourselves in these circumstances, I think God wants to speak into our lives, and we need to speak back. 
Sometimes you hear yourself praying prayers like this. God, I'm sorry, but there's no way I can do what you're asking me to do. There's no way I can make a difference in my workplace. There's no way I can make a difference in my school. God, my, most of my family, they're atheists. How, how on earth could I minister? They've already written you off. They do not believe there is even a God. How could I make a difference? And God's calling you still to do it. God, that, that, that country's full of terrorists. How could you call me to be a missionary in a country that's filled with terrorists? They don't even deserve my time or attention, let alone your grace and your mercy and your message of reconciliation. But I feel like God is saying to us the same thing he said to Jonah, a life is a life, the sacredness of life. I came for the whole world, not just for you. When this becomes our attitude and we become rebels, we must realign our focus. We must choose to regain our focus and to get the correct perspective on life. So there's three things we should do when we find ourselves in this situation. The first thing is to look up. And I find it ironic that the very things Jonah must do in this moment, before it's too late, he learns to do from the pagans that are on the journey with him. Let's pick up in verse 4 of Jonah chapter 1. It says, Then the Lord sent a powerful wind upon the sea, and there was such a big storm that the ship was about to break up. The sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God. They threw the things that were in the ship into the sea so that it would be, wouldn't be so heavy, but Jonah had gone below the ship and had lain down and fallen asleep. So he's running from God. He's on his way to the southern end of Spain, a resort city. He's sleeping and a storm comes. And the pagans, the people who do not believe in the one true God, call out to their God, the fake gods, to save them. And the one with the solution, the one who knows the maker of the heavens and the earth and the seas, is sleeping at the bottom of the boat. I find it ironic that when chaos strikes, the one who can cry out to the creator of the world is asleep. And the ones who don't know the answer cry out to their God. They do exactly what we should do in chaos. They cry out to their God who obviously does nothing. We can do this in our lives. When chaos strikes, we can actually cry out to God. We can look up to God before chaos strikes. In Luke chapter 15, we see Jesus do this very thing. It says, after his miracles, the news about Jesus spread even further. Massive crowds continually gathered to hear him speak and to be healed from their illness. But Jesus often slipped away from them and went into the wilderness to pray. Jesus knew the importance of looking up, constantly taking the opportunity to slip away. It says he did this often. If Jesus Christ, the, the Savior of the world, knew the importance of walking away from things time to time and just looking up to access the strength, the daily strength from heaven, I think it's an important lesson for you and I. Amen? The second thing we can do is look in. After we look up, we must then look in. Verse 6 of Jonah chapter 1. So the captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. 
In other words, look, we've called on our guys. They haven't done jack. We are going to die. Why don't you call on your God and see what he can do? It may be that your God will care about us and we won't die. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us draw names so that we can find out who is to blame for this trouble. So they drew names and Jonah's name was drawn. Then they said to him, now tell us who is to blame for this? What is your work? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? They start nailing them with these questions. So scholars believe that the way that they drew names or in another translation says they casted lots is everyone would take off an identifying marker, either a ring or an earring or a hairbreadth or a lucky coin, something that would signify who they were and represent them. They would put them into a cup or a container. Everyone would line up and they would just stand in the middle and they would shake the cup, the first one to fall out and land on the ground. Whoever that identified would be called forth because they were to have information as to why what was happening was happening. And of course it falls on Jonah. And they begin to question him, who are you? What country are you from? What, what do you do for a living? Where, what's going on? From what people are you? Jonah said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord God of heaven, which by the way, he makes, he made the sea and the dry land. Then naturally the men were filled with fear and said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was running away from the Lord because he had told them. So he has the information. They told him to call on his God. We don't know if he did or not. Obviously he didn't yet because now they're casting lots because they're trying to get to the bottom of why they are all in the midst of a huge storm. I don't know if it was the fury of the storm. Something was unusual to the point where they knew this is not just a natural disaster. This is the hand of a God. This is the hand of Jonah's God that is causing this storm. We have to figure out why this is happening. And I love that they recognize the opportunity to look within, to begin the investigation. What's going on? If there's a raging storm outside, there's got to be someone with a raging storm on the inside. Let's find out what it is and deal with it. After they looked up to God, they looked in to figure out what's going on. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 27 says that the Lord's light penetrates the human spirit, exposing every hidden motive. Well, there's a hidden motive here in Jonah, and it's time for it to be exposed. Psalm 51.6 says, I know that you delight to set your truth deep in my spirit, so come into the hidden places of my heart and teach me wisdom. In a moment of fear, in a moment of not being able to understand the will of God, we have to look up, and then we have to look in and allow God to reveal something within us that God wants to teach us. And the third thing that we see the pagans do, that we must do, is after we look up and after we look in, we look out. And it's amazing and it's ironic, once again, that after they look up and after they look in, they start to look out for one another. And they even look out for the culprit, Jonah himself. We continue. So they said to him, what should we do to you? We obviously know it's you that's caught. What do we do to you to make the sea quiet down for us? For the storm was getting worse. Jonah said to them, pick me up, throw me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that this bad storm has come upon you because of me. The men rode hard to return to land, but they could not. For the wind was blowing even worse against them. Even after they know 
that it's him. They decide to fight for him. They say, bro, we're not going to just throw you overboard if we don't have to. We're going we're to get through this. And it says that they rode harder and harder to get him to, to dry land, to get out of the storm. But it got worse and worse and was beating against them. Then, and this is so beautiful, then they called on the Lord and said, We beg you, O Lord, do not let us die for what this man has done, and do not let us become guilty for killing someone who is not to blame. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, they threw him into the sea, and the storm stopped. I just want to hold right there for a minute. Jonah was willing to die rather than surrender to God. He, had, he was at a place spiritually where he was not just asleep physically, he was asleep spiritually. They had to wake him up and say, bro, are you gonna, not going to call on your God? And now he's willing to be tossed into the sea and die rather than surrender to God. I believe in that moment, if he would have surrendered to God and said, guys, we got to turn this boat around because I'm not supposed to be going this direction. I need to be going to where God has called me to do. I believe God would have calmed it then, but he's willing to not do that and be tossed in the sea. Or maybe, just maybe, he realized these men are more like my God than I am right now. And I'm willing to sacrifice myself because when we walk away from God, it doesn't just affect us. It starts to affect the people around us. And he's saying, I don't, I don't think they need to go down with me. So guys, just throw me overboard. They fight for him. And they finally realize it's not working. So they throw him overboard. It says, then the men feared the Lord very much. They gave a gift and worship to the Lord and made promises to him. And the Lord sent a big fish to swallow Jonah. And he was in the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights. So once again, we see the ability to see clearly in the midst of chaos when we choose to look up and to look in, then we are able to look out. They recognize the sacredness of life. I believe God is speaking to you. I believe God is never going to stop pursuing you. And I don't know if you're running from God or if you're running to God. But if you continue to look up, you continue to look in, you continue to look out, I believe God's going to reveal himself to you in a powerful way. Amen. Would you stand with me? I'd like to close with this chapter, one that we've already read in the Passion Translation of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Can you give me that last scripture, Pierce? It says, but you are God's chosen treasure, priests who are kings, a spiritual nation set apart as God's devoted ones. He has called you out of darkness to experience his marvelous light. And now he claims you as his very own. He did this so that you would broadcast his glorious wonders throughout the world. Now the word broadcast in its purest definition means to scatter. Each one of us represents a different family, a different workplace, a different school district, a different neighborhood, a different home. It's time to scatter and to carry forth the wonders of God 
into a world that is gasping for a breath of fresh air. Again, he may not be calling you to Nineveh or to the Middle East. He's calling you across the street. He's calling you across the aisle. He's calling you into a place where you've heard him speak and it's time to answer the call. And when we answer the call, God does wonderful things. Amen. We don't need everyone in this room to be a pastor and be a Sunday school teacher. We need pastors and Sunday school teachers to empower the rest of us to be the field agents to carry out his peace in the chaos. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, in this moment, we are committing and recommitting our lives to you. Lord God, I'm tired of running. I repent from being a rebel. Today, God, I ask that you calm the storm in me so that I can calm the storm in others. God, I submit to you. I surrender to your will. And God, though I may not always understand, I'm committing to you and to the cause of Christ to go from a runaway and a rebel to a reconnected vessel of reconciliation. In Jesus' name, and if you believe it, say amen.